0: One of the differences I noticed between American Buddhism and Thai Buddhism when I returned to America was that in Thailand many people come to Buddhism looking for protection. There's a very strong sense that there are very real dangers in life and they need protection of some sort. And this can express itself in any way from, you know, protection from the practice itself to (coughs) wanting amulets that will take people through accidents and other dangers. And I could probably spend the entire night telling you amulet stories, but coming back to America, there was very little of that. Many times people would go to Buddhist teachers and with a sense of fear and the, the teachers would teach them, okay, your, your problem is your sense of separateness if you learn to trust the interconnectedness of all things and you would realize that there was no need for fear. And this is a, can be a useful teaching when people's fears are unrealistic. when you've you've learned to be a little bit too wary or too fearful of things, and you learn to open up and be a little bit more trusting. But when there are actual dangers out there, you can't tell people to open up, be vulnerable, expose themselves to the dangers. I'm reminded of a student of mine in California, a Korean woman who had to come to America after the Korean War was over. She had lost her father. She knew her father was killed. Her mother was taken away in the middle of the night one time, and she's never really known what happened to her mother. (coughs) She came to America and studied to be a psychotherapist and as part of her training she had to undergo psychotherapy. And so the therapist worked with her for several years and finally at the end of I think about the third or fourth year the therapist said "Um, I've taken you as far as I can go. Lots of the bases for your fears are realistic and psychotherapy can't help you there. You have to help yourself. Um, Fortunately Buddhism has a lot of teachings for dealing with realistic fears. The Buddha's first. Impulse as a young prince to start practicing was his realization of the inevitability of aging, illness, and death, which are definitely very real fears that um, have to be faced. And he realized that he needed special skills in order to face them. So tonight I talked a little bit, I'd like to talk about some of the Buddhist teachings on dealing with difficult situations, situations that are very uncertain, situations where your fears are realistic because the dangers are definitely there. But I'll start first with a non-Buddhist story which is about the Shackleton Expedition. I don't know how many of you know the story of the Shackleton Expedition. It was around the year 1910. A group went down to Antarctica with the plan of landing on one side of Antarctica, trekking across the continent, getting picked up on, on the other side by another ship that was going to come and, and receive them and go back home. What happened was they never even made it to Antarctica. The boat got stuck in the ice before they reached the continent, got pulled away from the continent in the, with the current of the ice The The movement of the ice finally crushed the ship. They had to get out, walk on the ice until they came to the ocean, put their little dinghies into the ocean and started rowing across the South Atlantic. Um, Ultimately landing on a little island off that Palmer Peninsula, that little squiggle of land that comes off of Antarctica. And then five of them set across the South Atlantic to South Georgia, landed on the wrong side of the island, had to walk across the island without any charts and finally made it to safety and were able to save all their friends. The amazing thing about the expedition was that nobody died. Everybody made it back safe and sound. And what they attributed this to was the fact that there were several times during the expedition when they thought everything was hopeless. They are going across the ocean, they could see nothing, everybody was sick, everybody was very tired. Um, Tired wasn't the word, exhausted, more like it. And then they... But there were always a few people who just kept their sense of discipline, and even though it looked hopeless, well, in this situation, you should do this. And so they just did what they had been trained as what they should do, and that was finally what got them through each and every time. For me, the most amazing story was when they had to cross the island of Georgia, and they came to an area where there were five peaks, and there were passes between the peaks, four different passes. And the question was, which pass do you try first? Because they didn't have a chart. They had no idea which was actually a pass and which would be a precipice. And so they just started walking from left to right across. And, well, it turned out that the the actual pass was on the right side, but they had started from the wrong side. So it was four times, you know, up the mountain before they finally went over. And they realized, of course, that one of the things that was going to do them in was if they started complaining to each other. And so they realized, you don't complain, you just don't complain, just do do what you have to do in order to keep things going. And so I said this sense of discipline that got them through I think is a very important thing that we have to think about as practitioners ourselves because it's the discipline that we develop in our own meditation, in our own practice that will get us through difficult situations. Um, Thinking of this in in Buddhist terms as a teaching of what's called the five strengths. And I noticed downstairs that you've probably heard the five strengths if you've been attending Cambridge Insight Meditation talks in the past. But I'd like to go over them in the context of this particular story showing how they apply it. The five strengths are qualities of mind, beginning with conviction. And this is conviction, first in the principle of the Buddha's awakening, but more, more specifically in the principle of karma. And we'll be going into more detail on that. The second is persistence. The third is mindfulness. The fourth is concentration. And the fifth is discernment. And these qualities are called strengths, because they give the mind the inner strength it needs to deal with situations... Um, When things are difficult outside, when you're surrounded by dangers, they give you the kind of refuge and inner security that you need in order to survive in a situation like that. Because a lot of the problem when people do find themselves in dangerous situations is that they tend to shut down completely. Um, Either they get careless and suffer for it, or they tend to just crawl into a little shell and learn that they just don't want to trust anyone at all, ever, which is also dangerous to themselves as well. The trick is learning how to learn how to to deal with situations when you aren't sure that you can trust anyone. Because sometimes the people who come and offer their help and offer, say that they're going to defend you, those are the ones who are the most dangerous ones out there right now. You have to learn how to trust yourself, and yet at the same time not shut down to other people. And the only way you can do this is by developing certain strengths inside. So I'd like to go down the list of the five strengths one by one and illustrate this focusing first on the story of the Shackleton expedition and then relating it to our own practice. The first one, conviction and the principle of karma. There's a lot of misunderstanding on the Buddhist teaching of karma. People tend to think that it's simplistic, they tend to think that it's fatalistic, and it's neither. It's It's quite a complex doctrine, but it's not fatalistic at all. The Buddha said, your experience of the present moment is made up of three things. The results of past actions the current action that you're doing in the present moment, which in particular is your intention in that particular moment. And then the third aspect in the present moment is the results of that present intention. Karma gives results not only over time, but also in the immediate present. As one of my friends back in Thailand said, you spit into the wind, you immediately feel the results. (laughs) And there's a lot of that that goes on in the mind. You allow unskillful thoughts to take over the mind, you immediately suffer in addition to the suffering that can come over the course of time. <clears throat> so the principle of karma here um, op- gives the opening for a change in the present moment. Some, some moments are so shaped by the past that there's very little that you can do aside from accepting the position si- situation with equanimity. But in others, your, your choice in the present moment will make a big difference. And so this gives you a sense of priorities where you should focus your attention. You don't focus your attention on bemoaning things you did in the past or the results of things you did in the past, but focusing on what you can do right now in the present moment. So there is room for hope. This also teaches you where your priorities should be, but it also teaches you that you should learn, there's a lot of training that needs to be done. When they talk about the proper intention in the present moment, they always use the word skillful. Now, I don't mean just sort of good intentions or well-meaning intentions, but skillful intentions, things that you've worked on over time. The principle of skillfulness is sometimes expressed in cut and dried rules, like the five precepts. Killing is never skillful. Stealing is never skillful. Illicit sex, lying, taking intoxicants is never skillful. These are certain simple rules of thumb that you can use all the time. People tend to chafe under the rules, but you have to think of them more in terms of the basic lessons you get when you take wilderness training. They take you out in the forest and they say, look, if a bear charges you, don't run. Now, when a bear actually charges you, what's your immediate impulse? Run. And so you need something simple to prevent that or to sort of counteract that. And if you had a long, long explanation about, you know, look at the bear, feel compassion for the bear... Um, that sort of thing, you're, you're going to forget that you're not supposed to run. <laughs> first, first rule of thumb, don't run. And these basic rules are things that you've got to keep in mind. In other, when, and the, you know, the rule against killing. You know, a lot of people's immediate impulses, you know, when, the, when, when there are attacks, let's go out and kill the bastards. Well, the Buddha says, no, don't kill, which means that you've got to think of other alternatives. You've got to start thinking outside of your, the immediate box or your immediate reaction. So simple rules like this can be very useful in situations. They're especially useful in very difficult situations where it's easy to lose your head. You've got to have some certain rules of thumb that you keep in mind. Other situations are not so clear-cut, and this is where the Buddha says you have to learn from your actions. Notice what your intentions are when you act, what the results of those tensions are, intentions, intentions are when you put them into practice. And it's just sort of Gradually, through a course of refinement and monitoring your mistakes, learn from your mistakes and build up a body of knowledge about what's skillful and what's not skillful in any situation. This would apply in the, in the Shackleton instance that you know there were certain rules of thumb that they that they knew you just don't give up hope you just keep, keep up <clears throat> do what you have been taught to do in a particular dangerous situation and even though there may be times when your past karma is such that you know there's nothing that could be done. You know, the wave is going to crash over your boat and there's nothing much you can do about it. But there are many times the mind has this tendency to start losing hope before there really is. Total hopelessness comes. And so you have something to hold you, to. hold to. Some basic rules of thumb. In our own lives, again, this applies in situations where we tend to lose, lose our wits, lose our heads. Remember, there are certain principles that you've learned in the past either specific things you've gotten from your teachers or skills that you've developed monitoring your own actions. And John Lee, who was my teacher's teacher, made a had a theme that repeated over and over again in his talk. So if you want to be a good meditator, there are certain things you learn from your teacher. There's a lot you can't learn from your teacher. But you simply experiment, he says it's like learning how to make a pot or a pair of pants, how to make tiles. You experiment with the object Take a look at what you've got. If it doesn't look very good, well, you try it again. Sew another shirt. Keep sewing. Observing what you've done. Evaluating the results. And over time, you you become a skillful tailor, skillful potter. Meditation is the same sort of process. You're not just sitting there chilling out in the present moment. You've got to realize, okay, you're doing something in the present moment. What are you doing? What are the results? This principle applies on the cushion. It applies in, in everyday life as well. And so this is the importance of the teaching on karma as a strength because it gives you the conviction that, yes, you know, what you do in the present moment does make a difference. Um, secondly, it gives you a sense of priorities where you should focus. You don't bemoan the past. If you made a mistake in the past, you do what you can to learn from it in the present moment and allow feelings of remorse just to go. Um, the reason there needs to be a sense of conviction in the principle of karma is because The way action works in our lives is very complex. Many times we're acting with what seem to be skillful intentions in the present moment, and yet the force of past karma is so strong that the immediate results seem pretty hopeless. And so there has to be an element of faith that you then confirm over time, that yes, when you do act on skillful intentions, you ultimately realize that whatever good things you have done are not lost. And that's an important principle. This has to be repeated. The good you do is never lost. Even though it may seem hopeless in the present moment, there's always an input into the future that you're eventually going to (coughs) be happy that, yes, you did act on the most skillful intentions you had at that particular moment. So that's the first strength, strength and conviction. Um, Understanding the principle of karma helps to explain the remaining strengths, such as the strength of persistence. Because your present, the present moment, is what's shaping your life as much as the past. The problem is, the present just keeps on happening. You have a present moment. You make a skillful decision. Well, it's not done. There's another present moment. You've got to make another skillful decision. You've got to keep at it. And this is where the principle of persistence comes in. They're not talking here of the kind of kind of effort where you just throw yourself at the at the job until you wear yourself out and then you get totally burned out. You try to develop the right kind of effort that you can just keep going an effort that you can maintain. Um, because you have to maintain it, because the law of karma is not a traffic law. With traffic laws like out here on Broadway. There are signs, you know, no parking Tuesdays and Thursdays from 4.30 to 6. Okay, the law applies only certain hours of the week. The rest of the week you can park there and do what you like. Um, but with the law of karma, it's, you know, it's, it's, well, it's 24-7, 365. It's all the time. There's no There's no break. So you have to develop a level of persistence that you can maintain in the practice. Um, probably the most famous discourse in the Buddhist text on this particular topic is the story of the monk who did walking meditation until his feet were bleeding. And he decided he was going to give up because he said, you know, I put this much effort into it, my feet are bleeding, I'm still not enlightened, I am better go back and become a layperson again. And the Buddha comes to him and says, um, back before you were ordained, when you are a layperson, did you know how to play the lute? And he said, well, yes, I was quite good at the lute. And the Buddha said, what happened if the string was too taut? Well, it would snap. What happened if the string was too lax? You wouldn't get any good tone. You had to tune one of the strings until it was just right, and then you tuned the rest of the strings to that one string so that you could play. Kind of like a guitar. In the same way, you have to develop a level of persistence, a level of effort that you can maintain continually over time. Because it's the, it's the cumulative effect of that habit that really starts making a difference. Um, one of the more, versus in the Dhammapada is so it uh, never underestimate the good shit that you do, even if it's little bits bits and pieces of good. Over time it develops. it builds up in the same way that a jar of water can fill up even though it's being filled by drops of water that just fall drop by drop by drop. It's this principle of consistency that really makes a difference in your effort. And you can see this illustrated in the story of Shackleton's expedition. They just kept at things. and When the going got tough, they kept going. When the going was easy, they kept going. And it was because they were able to maintain that consistency of effort that was gotten through. You'll notice this also in your meditation and in your daily life. (coughs) If you're the sort of person who will sit and meditate only when the meditation is going well, you will never develop any skill. You sit down, your mind is all over the place. You say, ah, tonight's not a good night. I think I'll just wait and do it tomorrow. (laughs) Well, you never learn how to deal with an obstreperous mind unless you sit with an obstreperous mind for a while. When it's easy, you sit. When it's difficult, you sit. When your legs hurt, you sit. When your legs don't hurt, you sit. When your mind seems to be like a ping-pong ball, you still sit. And then you learn from it. What works and what doesn't work in bringing down that obstreperous mind. <clears throat> this connects to the next strength, which is mindfulness. Uh, many times mindfulness is defined as non-reactive awareness. Um, how many of you heard that definition? Okay I've looked all around the Buddhist texts. I cannot find the Buddha ever defined mindfulness that way. Mindfulness is keeping something in mind. You walk out the door, you know you're going to the store. Okay, you keep in the mind you're going to the store, you've got something to buy. That's mindfulness. Um, You walk out the door, you think you were going to the store, you forget about where you're going, you're out in the middle of the street, you're very alert to the fact that you're in the middle of the street. That's not mindfulness. (laughs) It's alertness, it's two different things. In the practice, you want to put the two of them together, but the role of mindfulness is to keep something in mind. One in the sense of remembering the lessons you've learned from the past. When you're sitting here and meditating, you can remember, okay, you're going to stay with the breath. You're going to stay with whatever your meditation topic is. You don't let yourself forget. That's the mindfulness. Now, your alertness to your topic, the way you deal with, relate to the present moment, that's something else. That's alertness. The mindfulness is useful in that one that it keeps your mind where you want it to be to begin with. Secondly, the lessons you've learned about skillfulness from the past are there in your mind. When you sit down and, and things are uncomfortable, and you In your meditation, you've probably learned, well, well, if I've taught you, you've learned that you can play with the breath. So you play with the breath. Whatever other techniques you find have worked in your meditation, you keep those in mind and apply them to to this question of trying to be as skillful as possible in whatever you're doing. If you lack the mindfulness, you'll never learn. You learn a lesson tonight, tomorrow night you forget about it. It's like you have to reinvent the Dharma wheel every time you sit down. But if you keep these lessons in mind, over time you build up this body of skillful knowledge, just like developing a a set of tools that you can use in different situations. If you have only hammers, you can't build a house. If you have hammers, you have saws, you have chisels, you can build a house. And as a meditator, it's useful to have all these tools at hand. In the Shackleton story, you see that the quality of mindfulness was important and that they kept remembering what they should do, even the most dire straits. Things looked hopeless, things looked miserable. They, the Shackleton expedition is credited with having seen the biggest wave in the ocean that has ever been recorded. They were out in this little tiny dinghy and they looked up in the sky and said, gee, it looks like the moon is coming out of the clouds. And actually they realized it was the crest of a wave about to fall on them. And so they kept in mind, what do you do in a case like that? Okay, You don't lose your head, you hold on to the boat. that's mindfulness (laughs) you find that you you need need the same principle in your meditation you need, need the same principle in your daily life you have a series a set of a body of knowledge that you developed a body of skill and you keep it in mind at all times and apply it whenever it's needed when you keep your mind focused on your intentions in the present moment. And as it gets more and more consistent in the way you do that, the mind cannot help but settle into concentration. Now, when we talk about discipline, there tends tends to be a feeling that discipline gets kind of dry, it's wearisome. But the uh, development of concentration is specifically there to make it lubricated, as my teacher used to say. When the mind settles down, there is a sense of ease that comes with the stillness. There's a sense of rapture that can come with the stillness, a sense of equanimity. And there's a uh, there's a nourishing quality to these faculty, these factors. There's a sense of well-being that comes simply by sitting and breathing in a very comfortable way. The mind is still. There's a sense of well-being that comes with this, and this is what gives you the nourishment that you need in order to keep going with this process of developing more and more skill. There's a passage in the Canon where the Buddha compares the different uh, skills that you develop in meditation to things that are needed at a fortress at the at, at a at a border town. And the qualities that come from meditation are from concentration. He compares to the food, the supplies that you need in order to keep people strong and healthy in this fortress. And so you try to develop the qualities of ease. You allow them to come in. The Buddha said, that, you know, the pleasure that comes from concentration is a blameless pleasure. I remember when I was first starting to meditate... <clears throat> I get any of these states and I say, Josh, this is really nice. It feels really good. I probably shouldn't be feeling good like this because I'm supposed to be meditating. Um, and my teacher cleared that one up pretty fast. He said, look, without that sense of well-being, without that sense of comfort, um, everything just gets dry. It's like a machine that gets has no lubricant. After a while, things just begin to freeze up. You don't have the energy to keep on going. So the concentration provides you with a sense of ease, well-being, it also provides you with a focus that you need. Because if you sat and thought about all the things that could possibly happen to you in life, all the good and bad things, you would be distracted all over the place. Concentration focuses your energies on places where it's most useful, where it's most needed. And a sense of focus helps cut out a lot of the distractions. You can focus on the issue at hand, which is precisely, what is your intention right now? How skillful is the intention? Is there any adjustments need to be made? They can be made right right here, because you are right there. Also, the concentration provides you with a sense of equanimity. Equanimity tends to have good and bad press. The bad press is that it sounds like a sense of indifference. You don't care what happens to yourself. You don't care what happens to other people. That's because it's taken out of context. It's taught as part of what are called the four Brahma-Viharas, or the four, what might be translated as sublime attitudes. You start with goodwill for yourself and for other people. You wish for your happiness, you wish for your happiness for others. If you see that you are suffering, you see that other people are suffering, you do what you can to stop the suffering. If you see that you're happy, other people are in a sense of well-being, you appreciate that, you have a sense of sympathetic joy. You don't begrudge other people their, their happiness. However, if you find you're in a situation where you can't help other people, or if it seems like the people who are happy seem to be bastards. Um, (laughs) And there's quite a few of them in this world. Um, But there's nothing you can do about it. That's when you develop a sense of equanimity. Equanimity is selective. You have to know where your equanimity applies. You have to know where. Because if you just get yourself all worked up about things that you can't change, you're you're wasting your energy that could be very fruitfully devoted to other areas. So it's it's an... Equanimity is a quality that you need in in order to maintain your sense of priorities. Keep your focus so that you can focus on things where you really can make a difference. Again, in the story of Shackleton, they could have sat there in the boat and thought of all the miserable things that could happen. Here they were, thousands of miles from home, out in the cold, cold sea. Nobody to take care of them. No trust that the currents of the ocean were going to be helpful. And they could have focused on that, and they probably would have died. However, they focused on okay. There is something we can do. There's something we've been trained to do. Let's do it. And they kept their focus on that. As you maintain that focus, you begin to realize there's there's a sense of detachment that comes from it. Some some people call this getting into the zone, where you know you're playing something. You're playing a sport, and all of a sudden everything seems to be going so well because you are so focused that you see things a lot more clearly, with a certain sense of detachment. This clear seeing not only enables you to perceive the situation as it actually is. Also, it off- offers a little bit more room for ingenuity to come in. Okay, what should be done right now? Things that you might never have thought of before. When you're in that state of focus, that state of detachment, that state of clarity, ideas can come in. Ideas have a space to surface. So that even though there may not be a specific rule or a specific skill that you've mastered in the past, things occur to you that might not have occurred otherwise. This is how the strength of concentration gives room for it, discernment a clear seeing of what should be done, what shouldn't be done, a sense of ingenuity that allows you to try new approaches if things are not going well. This this is what concentration concentration gives for you. Um, There's a story that's related to this. I don't know if you've heard of the story of Buna, the monk who was going off to a dangerous place. Um, He comes to the Buddha one day and says, I'd like to go to Western India basically and Buddha says "Mm, Western India the people there are pretty tough are you ready to go what happens what will you do if they start cursing you because they're known to be uncivilized they might curse you and the monks and Buddha, the monk says well I think it's these people are very good that they're not throwing stones at me okay what if they throw stones at you I think these people are very good and they're not stabbing me with a knife you can see where this is going. <laughs> what if they stab you with a knife? I think these people are very good and they're not killing me. What if they kill you? Then he, he thought to himself, and he said, I will think to myself, other people have died through suicide. At least my death will not be a suicide. <laughs> and the Buddha says, You can go. <laughs> now, I've heard some people talk, think of that as a very sort of life denying or life negating story. <coughs> I don't think it's that way at all. One, it shows the the power of ingenuity that gets yourself through any situation, even skillfully through the situation of death. But it also teaches us that there is something that's more important than life. Now, if you're told that life is the most important thing you have, isn't that the most depressing thing you could think of? I mean, what happens to life? It ends. (laughs) And it doesn't end smoothly. I'm watching my father go through the last stages of his life, and it's very unpleasant. You start losing this faculty, you start losing that faculty. Dementia comes in, dementia goes away, comes back again. Your body starts falling apart. All of these insults to you before you go, basically. To say nothing of the suffering that you go through. So if you think that life is the most important thing you have, you just keep grasping on, grasping on. and Ultimately you become the sort of person who will just grasp on, and will scratch and kick and bite. If you're losing your life, you're going to take other people down with you. But if you realize, okay, you've got something that's more valuable than that, you've got the strengths of mind that you develop, the qualities of mind you developed. When you're coming from a position of strength, when you feel, okay, my happiness is dependent on something that cannot be threatened, Okay, you're going to have nothing but good to offer both to yourself and to other people. I mean, the evil that's done in the world is from people who are weak and threatened. And they do what they can in order to get out of that situation. When you're operating from a position of strength, and this is ultimately what Buddha, the Buddhism offers is through developing conviction, persistence, mindfulness, concentration and discernment, you can bring the mind to a point where it, it gets in touch with what does not die. And when you have that position of strength, okay, then there's nothing that there's no feeling of being threatened. The kindest people, the most generous people, the most courageous people are the ones who have that sort of inner resource, that inner strength, that inner security that comes from developing these qualities of mind. So as we face, you know, what is really a, a very difficult, uncertain situation now? Well, let me back up and say, the situation has always been uncertain and difficult. <laughs> We're a little bit more alert to the fact, many of us, right now. But Buddhism does have to offer, the Buddhist teachings do have to offer strengths that we can develop within ourselves so that we can handle any situation like this. People many times talk about the trust um, that comes with a practice the most important trust is when you can learn how to trust yourself that you have qualities of mind that you develop and that you really can depend on if you can't trust yourself thats I think that's the greatest insecurity of all you don't know that you're, you can't trust yourself to do the right thing you can't trust yourself to do the skillful thing that's scary because you're living with your worst enemy if say for instance you allow anger to overcome your mind as the Buddha once said people who allow anger to overcome their minds end up doing things precisely what their worst enemy would be glad to see them do to themselves. And so you've got to learn how to develop these skills inside. And it does take time, it takes effort, but it's effort and time that's well spent. Because it does ultimately lead you to a point where you have a strength, you have an inner security, you have an inner wealth that cannot be touched by anything at all. When you're operating from that, then there's nothing but good. Those are my thoughts on the topic. I'm supposed to give you time to leave? (laughs) Before I entertain questions? (laughs) Anything else? Thank you for coming. Yes. Yes. An amulet story, oh. Yeah. <laughs> These work best if I had if brought amulets to hand out. Uh, my favorite amulet story is one that concerned the John Lee, <coughs> my teacher's teacher. In the year 1957, which in the Buddhist calendar was 2,500, and is traditionally believed to be sort of the halfway point in the life of Buddhism, he had a million amulets made, and then he handed them out. And one day a group of soldiers came to him, and he was handing them out by the handful, because we've got a million amulets, you can be, afford, to be, be, afford to be generous. And so as he was handing them out, he said, don't test them. Because there is a tendency in Thailand when you get an amulet to take home and test it. It's like getting a new stereo; you take it home and you, you crank up it, crank it up. Um, the common way of taking, is taking it back, putting it on a tree and shooting at it. And if the gun misfires or you miss, okay, it's a good amulet. (laughs) So they said, well, don't test the amulet. If the time comes, the amulet will help you. If the time doesn't come, don't test it. So they said, yeah, 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 went back home. And being soldiers, they got drunk on the way home. And so they said, he's handing these things out by the, the handful. They must not be worth very much. Let's test them. So their way of testing, though, was that they were driving along and they saw this water buffalo out in the middle of a field. And they looked around and they didn't see any owner and so they stopped the jeep, and they put one of the amulets on the buffalo's horn, they backed up, and they opened fire. The buffalo was unscathed. I'd forgotten whether the guns didn't fire or what. And so immediately they said, oh, my gosh, we're, we're told not to test the amulet, and here we've disobeyed him. So a few weeks later, they went back to visit a John Lee and confessed that they had, yes, test the, tested the amulets. And he said... The reason I told you not to test them is if, if a person has bad karma, no amulet can help them. Okay, if a person has good karma, then the amulet can be sort of a, you know, sort of a little, a little nudge in the right direction. He said so the reason why the water buffalo wasn't hurt was because the water buffalo was better than the people. <laughs> 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 Which, if you know Thai, is an extreme insult. So. <laughs> Water buffalo is about as dumb as they can um, that's an amulet story. Okay. Yeah. Yes. I was um, intrigued by you mentioned
1: playing with the breath. Yes. So I wanted mm-hmm. to ask about that because <coughs> it's a boring practice question, but um, just lately I've been meditating a good bit, but um, the, the mind is like MTV pretty much and yeah, I've been doing this for few years and I'm really frustrated because I you know, where's the a Right. And. um mm-hmm. uh it's, I guess
2: the best I can describe is I, I can be aware of it but I'm not in it at all it's mm-hmm.
0: just kind of well there's my nose and I, mm-hmm. kind of, I just can't even get in touch really close to the breath okay. um, one thing you might try is just experimenting what kind of breath really feels good right now and don't think just to the nose but to the entire torso, breathing where would it feel good and you can sort of feel which muscles would feel good breathing in which muscles would feel good breathing out and then you just play with that experiment with that and that it helps you get more absorbed in the breathing if you're simply sitting there watching it it gets very dull because there's always going to be that sense if it's not really really comfortable if it's not kind of pulling you in there's nothing there to, to stick to but if you start getting hey this feels really good let's try it again and then again and again and then it gets more fun to meditate and as it gets more fun to meditate, you find you want to sit and meditate again. So this, this is a... I know Larry and I have had long arguments on this topic. <laughs> but I really, I've personally have found that it's very helpful to, be, you know, to experiment as po- much as possible with the breathing. And, and you'll find sometimes it's not just a physical sort of resistance that you're dealing with, but there are a lot of, sort of emotional time bombs set up in your body or emotional sort of tightnesses. And as you begin to breathe and get more and more sensitive to what kind of breathing feels good, you find that these will open up. And then the breathing becomes more of a whole body process. And when it's a whole body process, you're stuck. But you're stuck in a good way. Okay. So, try that. There's a hand back here. Yes?
3: Yeah, um, the concept of persistence always bothers me. Mm-hmm. Um, because it has sort of a, um, a tough character to it. I mean, having a bad day is it? quote unquote a bad day mm-hmm. and uh, meditation, you know, say you have a bad day and you turn the meditation, meditation, through your meditation you don't really get an insight. The mm-hmm. next day, yep, the next day, you try it again. But sometimes I, get, I approach it with a little bit too much vigor, too much like mm-hmm. uh, an aggressive attitude. You don't know mm-hmm. what to overcome that. So, that, you know, there's persistence of just going at it day after day, but sometimes that in itself.
0: Okay, simple persistence is not necessarily right effort. There has to be a sense of, okay, what skillful qualities are already here? What skillful mental states are already here? Try to make the most of them. If they're not there, okay, what can you do to bring them up? In which case sometimes sitting there, the breath may not be what you need that day. Okay, look at where your state of mind is at that moment. Okay, Are you, you is it lust, is it anger, frustration, fear? What are the problems? And there are antidotes to each of those uh, unskillful states. If it's anger, okay, you try to develop first goodwill for yourself, goodwill for the other people. If it's lust, okay, you start taking the body apart. And say, what is there really here that's worth, worth lusting over?
1: You
0: now, if you took all your body parts out and then put them on the middle of the floor, what would you do? <laughs> One, you'd create a mess for the people who have to clean up at CIMC the next day. But secondly, I mean, you'd want to run away. And here you are sitting in it, <laughs> as if it were perfectly normal. So, but so there, there are antidotes to these different sort of mind states. And that's, that's why I said earlier, it's useful as a meditator to have lots of different tools. If you just keep banging away at the same technique all the time, you're going to get frustrated. So the persistence is simply, okay, it's the persistence in trying to make an effort in creating good mental states and, and sort of pushing away the unskillful mental states. That's where the effort should be. Which may not necessarily mean sitting on the cushion. You may just want to walk around for a while. <coughs> so try, it, try also all sorts of alternatives. Yes? I also
4: have a practical practice mm-hmm. question. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I'm following the breath, told, the instructions I've received are to notice them without getting attached to them, and sooner or later presumably they'll pass away and then Mm -hmm. come back to the breath Mm -hmm. what I'm struggling with now a little bit is I'm not sure it's a very fine line between noticing when they have passed away and then you're able to come back to the breath on Mm -hmm. the one hand, Mm -hmm. and on the other hand wanting to go away so you push them away and then you get back to the breath Mm -hmm. so
0: I'm wondering if you Sometimes you have to push. It's okay? Yeah. Traditionally there are five ways of dealing with distracting thoughts. The first one is simply that noticing that they're there, bring your attention back to your meditation object. And and sometimes if it's that's just enough right there. Other times you realize they just keep coming back, coming back. In this case, you have to look at the drawbacks of thinking about those things. You know, if I were to run those movies through my head several times, you know, what would happen as a result? And begin to realize, I don't want to go there, I've been there many times before. Okay, then they'll fall away. Third one is consciously ignoring them. The image I think of every time I think, think of this particular technique is that you've got work to do, and this crazy person is coming up with all these weird things to tell you, <laughs> trying to get your attention. And so if you even, as much as turn and look at the crazy person, they've got you, right? But in this case, you say, okay, I know you're there, but I'm going to pretend you're not there. So you just stay with the breath, and it's going to chatter away in the background. And like most crazy people, we'll start saying crazier and crazier and crazier things to get your attention. <laughs> but just as long as you maintain your, you know, your, your determination, I'm going to stay right here and not feed you. After a while, the thoughts, because that kind of thought depends on your attention in order to remain, to stay there. After a while, it just starts dying out. Another one is that when you get sensitive to these different breath sensations in the body, you begin to realize when the distracting thought comes into the mind, there's going to be a pattern of tension someplace in the body to go along with it. If you can sense the pattern of tension that comes with the thought, you relax that pattern. The thought's gone. The fifth one is if none of these work, you just, as the Buddha says, you know, press your tongue against the palate, cleanse your teeth, and I will not think that thought. <laughs> And if you compare this to a toolbox, it's like having the sledgehammer. <laughs> bang away at it. And that works for a little while. But sometimes it's all you need, just kind of clear the air a little bit. And then you can go back, and if you find, okay, when you come out of that state of clenchness, um, okay, if the thought is still there, maybe it's going to be weaker, and then you can deal with the other, one of the other four methods will help. There are lots of things you can do to deal with distracting thoughts.
4: Yeah, mm-hmm. but at this point, for me, using some of the techniques that you described, like mm-hmm. igno- consciously ignoring, yeah, the effort of consciously ignoring or whatever is associated with consciously ignoring comes up on my radar as a thought, and then I feel mm-hmm. compelled to ignore that, and then I'm kind of
0: like mm-hmm. lost. readjust your radar, because <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> any thought that helps you come back eventually is a good thought. It's a useful thought. There's a question over here.
5: Question about judgment. Um, Sometimes we're told that your meditation should be without goal, just you know, put yourself, follow your breath, and you're not trying to get anywhere or mm-hmm. accomplish anything. Mm-hmm. And so, as a result, you shouldn't sit back and judge and say, "Well, gee, that was a B minus today. Mm-hmm. Yes, I guess I it to a B plus, and I must be slipping." Um, but the sense I get from the instructions that you're proposing is that you should really be judging, and you should really be saying. This is where I, want, I am here, and I'm going to go there, mm-hmm. and I'm going to keep working, just like Shackleton yeah. had this objective. And from that perspective, you do have a goal. Mm-hmm. And from that perspective, you have to be judgmental. Because mm-hmm. if you have a goal, you're judgmental. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of comparing this, uh, this notion that I, I think I'm getting from you with what we've heard before about being non judgmental without a goal.
0: The difference is between using your judgment skillfully and unskillfully. If you didn't have a goal, what would you be doing here? You'd be someplace else with another goal, right? People can't live without goals. There's got to be a purpose in your actions. Now the question is, how do you relate to that purpose in such a way that you actually get there and that your you know, immediate judging mind doesn't get in the way? That's, that's the issue. Now for many people, the judging mind is just kind of unskillful anyhow, so they say, okay, st- put it aside for the time being. But ultimately, you have to learn how to train your judgment so that it actually is a help along the practice. Um, The image I I like to use for myself in this case is, suppose there's a mountain on the horizon you want to drive to. Now, if you spend all of your time driving out there, looking at the mountain while you're driving along, what's going to happen? You crash. But if you know, okay, the mountain is that direction, the road seems to be going the right direction, I'm going to focus on the road. Okay, your breath is going to take you to where you want to go. So you focus your attention on the breath. And where else can you focus but right here in the present moment? Mm-hmm. And if you find that your eagerness to get to the goal or your desire for a you know, totally linear <laughs> practice mm-hmm. gets in the way, okay, that's when, you, that's when you put aside your judging faculty.
5: So it sounds like there's a kind of skillful judgment that's right. important.
0: Right, right, right.
5: Mm. I think we haven't probably learned enough about
0: that. Yeah, okay. Maybe next year I'll give a talk on it.
4: Yes? Mm-hmm. Well, you described some of the states that you experienced when you started to meditate. Mm-hmm. And I've been meditating, in my own mind, five or six years, mm-hmm. and I've never had the experience of of, one, of that kind of state that mm-hmm. you're talking about. <coughs> and um, yet I persist mm-hmm. because I believe that it is helpful, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and that... I do believe in the, in the teachings, but it's hard for me to to maintain my, my 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 purpose at times because I don't you know I don't get I I'm not getting the, the feedback or the nurturing of my practice and I wonder is, am I doing it the wrong way or I mean I
6: I come to dharma talks I I go to retreats I out breath I you know
4: try to yeah, practice uh, I, you know I, I observe my thoughts but I, I never seem able to really transcend my well,
0: ordinary mind I say it's you know, the same advice I gave over here mm-hmm. Just try playing with your breath mm-hmm. you've got to give yourself something that <coughs> is pleasant to be within the present moment mm-hmm. and sometimes that sense of pleasure is very very small it seems very ordinary and they're uh, not very extraordinary but it's 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 kind of like a, a path that you're following there's little seedlings coming up in the path and some of those are weed seedlings but some of them are you know tree seedlings that would be useful trees to have around and so when you learn to notice okay there is a sense of well-being a sense of ease let's see if I can balance on that for a while and maintain it and after a while it will begin to grow in the same way that the tree will grow and eventually will give you shade if you look after it So it's a sense of recognizing where a good attachment would be. Many times we're afraid of getting attached to to things in our practice. And a lot of it is simply replacing unskillful attachments with more skillful ones. And so I've got got this sense of ease going, let's kind of keep it going for a while. And adjust your breath and adjust the way you focus on it to, to sort of help protect it. There's a there's a word in Thai, which my teacher always uses, which literally means it's like a child is walking along, it's just learning how to walk, and so you're there kind of behind it, helping it, making sure it doesn't fall. And you want to have that attitude towards times when the mind does settle down, it does feel okay. And it start. it just may just be that, okay. No lights, no, you know, no background music, but just a nice okay sense. But then after a while, as you maintain that, you find that you you don't step on it, you don't kill it, it begins to grow. And then you find yourself getting more absorbed in the practice. So I'd I'd advise that. Yes? Uh, Could you please
2: go into a bit more depth on what mindfulness is and what it is not, given that there might be some kind of misinterpretations that some of us might have been reading about or conjuring it? Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. well mindfulness basically involves just keeping in mind something you know you should be doing or that you want to do um, It's in Pali It's rela- the word sati is related to the verb sanati which means to remember and so you're trying to keep something in mind remember something it's like, you know, like the old Christian saying be ever mindful of the means of others keep those in mind as you're acting um, in the practice it's coupled with alertness and ardency. Ardency is this persistence we we're talking about. Alertness is simply watching what's going on, seeing clearly what's happening. And in, the, in this practice, you're trying to keep yourself mindful to stay with the present. So the alertness to the present is one thing. The mindfulness that reminds you to keep there is something else. And then if you want to develop a state of equanimity along with that, okay, you remind yourself, okay, keep calm, don't get upset, don't get excited or whatever skillful state that you're trying to develop. Just keep that in mind and sort of work towards it. Um, and it's not simply just noting what arises, but there's also there's a sense of willing that's involved as well. You're, you're heading yourself in a definite direction. But again, as we said earlier, that, that, that element of willing has to be... Again, you learn how to monitor it so it gets more and more skillful. Now, as you're doing this in mindfulness practice, ultimately... Mindfulness develops into a quality that's called directed thought, in which your thoughts really just stay with that particular object that you've chosen. Alertness develops into evaluation as you're sort of adjusting and evaluating the results of what you're doing. These are the beginning factors of of, uh, right concentration. So the purpose of mindfulness is to pull you into a state of absorption, state of concentration. Um, The word they use in Pali is jhana. Which is related to a verb jayati, which means to burn steadily Now most people's minds are like flames with you know flames jumping up and down all the time but finally you are trying to adjust it so you've got just a steady burn on that one object and then you allow that's the sense of sort of stillness and ease just to f- fill the whole body.
2: Um, right now I feel like um, what I'm trying to remember since mindfulness being remembering is
0: to be present that's a good use of it yeah right yeah because being present in the presentness in the moment that's being alert to the moment and so you keep reminding yourself stay right here don't go wandering off wherever the thoughts because thoughts tend to be like arrows instead of looking at the arrow and just okay that's an arrow and go back you, you go off in that direction just okay just keep reminding yourself not that thought not that thought to stay right here with this thought and then you can settle down yeah. anything else yes
2: um, can you talk a little bit more about um, when you were t- answering his question about being absorbed in the in the practice? Mm-hmm. Like you do get calm and you do get focused. Whoa, whoa, whoa. And
1: of course. Now what? Um, I want to jump out of that. Mm-hmm. And go, okay. This is good. Okay, but soon it won't be. Or um I go there before? Right, you know, right. Just allowing yeah. to settle in,
2: and mm-hmm. then the other. Um, to going sleepy mm-hmm. and just really, you know,
0: just t- like I take it too far. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. The the jumpiness. It said this is good, but it's going to end. Um, you say, well, it's not ending yet. Let's keep it going. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And one of the skills of, I mean, the skills of concentration are one, how to get there. Okay. Once you've gotten there, the next thing is how to maintain it. Right. Just keep it going. So. Your next step will be learning how can I maintain this, you know, as I'm sitting here, when I open my eyes, instead of my attention immediately just flowing out, how do I maintain this center of gravity inside? When I get up, can I maintain that center of gravity? When I walk around, can I maintain that? That's the next step. So that's something you've got something to work on. It's kind of like you know Linda Johnson's joke about Gerald Ford. You know, the man couldn't walk and chew gum at the same time. <laughs> Most of us can't walk and keep our minds still at the same time. <laughs> and so, what we're learning as we're practicing is to how to main, you know, do, th- do those two things at the same time. So that's so. Don't be in too great a hurry to move on. Okay. Yeah, was, of course, my question would be, well,
2: how? You know, because it's almost like at that point you're. I want to think of something, but that's the whole idea: is that you're you're not thinking and keep that. Mm-hmm. Present
0: the next step will be how to maintain your center and think at the same time. Um, that, and that depends on having a whole body awareness as your, as your, as your object. <coughs> Once you've got the whole body as your object, then you, thoughts can come up and you can kind of entertain them, but you've still got this sense of the body there in the background. That's the continuity you want to maintain. It's not the same intensity that it is when you're not thinking, but there is a sense of groundedness in your thought that you want to work on. Because the third step after you've you know, learned how to get your mind in that state, keep it in that state, then you learn how to put it to use. Such as? Such as, well, you'll find that if you have this whole sense of the body, useless thoughts um, don't have the same pull that they used to have. Right. That's one really good use right there. Okay. And then secondly, you can start applying it to other issues of you know, when you're getting carried away by greed, anger, delusion you have a grounded sense where you can actually watch these things happen, watch them come and watch them fall away. Mm -hmm. And you're still grounded right here without getting involved. So those are the three stages. Learn how to get the mind there, learn learn how to keep it there, and then learn how to put it to use. And don't be in too great a hurry to move on. You want to develop a foundation. There's a discourse the Buddha has about what he called the foolish, inexperienced cow. (laughs) (laughs) The cow is on hillside where there's a nice meadow, nice grass, nice water, and she looks across the the other hill and there's another meadow over there. And she says, that grass looks awfully good. (laughs) That water looks awfully good. Let's go see what it's like. But because she's foolish and inexperienced, she walks down the hill and she gets stuck. Which means she can't get up to the other hill. She can't get back to where she was. So, hang out in your meadow. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> As for sleepiness, um, oftentimes okay, you, the mind begins to settle down and say, okay, This is what I wanted. I've been meditating so I can just rest. And so you, <laughs> mindfulness goes. And so at that point, when things start getting comfortable, you have to stop and say, Look, I've got to, to do some work in order to keep the edge of this mindfulness going. Right. One way is to start spreading your awareness throughout the whole body or surveying different parts of the body. Okay, When I'm breathing in, what does it feel like in my abdomen? What does it feel like in my chest? What does it feel like in my shoulders? What does it feel like in my back? Just kind of survey the whole thing To even get, what does it feel like in my fingers? What does it feel like in my toes? Can I stay centered and yet be aware of the whole body all at once? When you do that, that tends to wake you up. Because yeah, I think it was getting too much in my head, and, mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and then I just... Like, kind of lose it, yeah. Because it's so easy, when, especially when the breath gets subtle, you begin to lose focus, mm. so you've got to give yourself something else to hold on to, even when the because ultimately the breath is going to stop. So you've got to have something to hold on to when that happens, and so you prepare yourself for that by surveying the body and being aware of the whole body. <coughs> you, you saw Goldfinger, didn't you? The, 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 the movie, Bond. yeah, the Actually, James Bond movie. I a- oh my gosh! I <laughs> I'm dating myself <laughs> <laughs> No, I just don't want, I mean, I'm, I'm yeah. not particularly fond of James Bond <laughs> okay. okay, well there's, there's a woman in the movie who gets painted gold okay. You know that? And she dies Okay. okay. Mm-hmm. And the reason she died, because she wasn't getting any oxygen okay. through her skin okay. Okay. When the mind gets really still there comes a point where that's enough to keep you going, so you don't have to breathe You're getting enough oxygen in your skin so, you have to prepare yourself for that happens, otherwise, you just lose it and drift off, which you don't want. Thank you. Sure. Anything else? Yes?
2: Um, I, have, I have a tired parent, and she told me that when she was a girl, she meditated. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um. And my parents, from various practices, have always told me that children, when they meditate, must only meditate. Many minutes of their age, mm-hmm. um, because otherwise it's not good. Um, but I have a general question about dharma and,
0: and children. children. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and also my son, he has an anxiety around. Um, and I'm also a teacher. I notice that children have anxieties, and my son has an anxiety about um, smoke detectors,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and it's just been going on and on and on today, we were cleaning the stove before turning it on. He really needed to make sure that the stove was clean. It's four years old. Mm-hmm. So that there would be no smoke. Uh-huh. Therefore, no yeah. alarm. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's starting to it's starting to get to the point where every house he goes to, he checks that the, the yeah. smoke detector uh-huh. makes it in the spring. The there won't be electricity because it's warmer. Therefore, there's no danger. Mm-hmm. But he's been thinking this through, and I think, gosh, the experience we had um, a year ago of, of the, smoke, the, the smoke alarms going off at six in the morning has stayed with him and he's, so i I'd like, I have those two <coughs> how to deal with the anxieties, which I also
0: see in other children mm-hmm. that I work with, mm-hmm. um, and Dharma, Yeah, you Donna. Know,
2: Dharma and Jando for
0: children? For, for children. Okay. Um, Meditation, as long as an adult is sitting nearby, is okay. And children tend to have an ability to sort of drop everything else and really focus. Um, And so you can develop that with a child very easily. Um, There are other areas of dharma, though, that are also very useful for children in terms of you know developing generosity, having a sense of you know right and wrong actions, not in the sense that you know. You're going to go to hell if you misbehave. But these are wise actions. These are wise rules to live by. Make life easier for yourself. You make life easier for the people around you if you hold to these rules. And you start out with sort of one at a time. Most important one is the one against lying. Once you've got that principle established, then the other ones come pretty easily. But again, you want to introduce them in a way that's not threatening, but simply say, this is a skillful way to act. and try to encourage that in terms of anxieties um, <coughs> you have to work up to that gradually I don't know what you can do to sort of work up in terms of smoke alarms it's, it's, for him it was a little bit like the
2: wave that yeah. they saw on the boat yeah. mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. so I, I suppose I'll just follow your advice with regards to that they did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. on this expedition
0: What you could do is set up all the smoke alarms in the house and you sit there with him (laughs) and say, look, there's nothing wrong with the smoke alarm going off. Mm -hmm. I I must admit, I myself get freaked out by smoke alarms going off at 2 a.m. in the morning. Mm -hmm. But um, tell him that, look, if it happens during the day, it's okay. Mm -hmm. You can just sit there and kind of hold him, or whatever is is reassuring for him when a smoke alarm goes off. And then in Thailand... Mm -hmm. As long as there's an adult, children, at what age, age? It's usually start around seven. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. That's when they begin to concentrate. And, and how long do they have to be in the presence of an adult? I'd say at least until they're about ten or so. Because occasionally scary things can come up in the meditation, and you want to have somebody there to reassure them, okay, it's just you know a vision that's coming through or whatever. Because children do tend to visualize very easily with a meditation. I I was always amazed at how many kids would start getting the sense of bright light very quickly and actually might start seeing things in the light. This is why you want an adult there, to reassure them, okay, if you don't like the light, just think of it going away, it'll go away. Yeah, welcome. Yes?
6: You mentioned that uh, when you can take your body apart and just sort of arrange it as a pile on the floor Mm -hmm. becomes somewhat distasteful and so you're a little bit more reluctant to cling to it Mm -hmm. when it falls apart. Mm -hmm. Um, What happens when you similarly arrange your mind uh, as a pile on the floor and it also is somewhat distasteful? (laughs) (laughs) What then becomes the motivation to keep practicing and keep developing insights into... What is an organ that basically falls apart, just like the body, through dementia, like you said, in old
0: age? What's, what's okay? The, um, the fact that when you've been developing mindfulness, you can... I mean, the horrible part of dementia is when you don't know you're demented. If you're developing your mindfulness and alertness, you can tell. And, um, and also people who've been practicing this meditation have less and less and less of a tendency to do that than other people. I mean, some people will come up against organic brain problems in the brain, but, again, they'll know that it's happening. My teacher had a student who had um, heart surgery, and in the course of the surgery, they had cut off one of the wrong arteries. And so he came out and realized that part of his brain was not functioning. He had developed enough mindfulness now so that he knew that it was not functioning. And in the beginning, he, you know, he... He would say things and think that he hadn't said them or just thought them or vice versa. But then he would begin to notice that this was happening. He had enough presence of mind to to realize what was happening. And he could, could, gradually he began to see his mental faculties coming back. But if you have that strong enough sense of an observer that you develop through the meditation, you can say, okay, my mind isn't functioning right right now. I know it's not functioning right. Okay, At least that much of me is sane. And you can hold on to that.
6: That also
0: falls apart. Because uh, that's not the end. You know, Buddhism teaches about rebirth, and the qualities of mind that you develop carry over the next time around. And if you, you know, if you can attain the deathless before then, you're fine. <coughs> I mean, it doesn't matter that this brain function is not functioning anymore. I have a <clears throat> my current teacher in Thailand was uh, in a very bad car wreck and several years back, and sustained a fair amount of brain injury in addition to lung injuries and being paralyzed from the base of the spine on down. And I went back to visit him last December and he said to me, you know, a lot of crazy thoughts come through my head. (laughs) He says, you know, what, and he said, what I attained in the practice is not gone in the sense that he wouldn't say it himself, but I I have a strong sense that he has touched the deathless. Um, He said, that never goes. And once you've got that, then you're safe. But he says, I watch these crazy thoughts, and they're really crazy. But that's just the brain. When you can de-identify, or no longer identify yourself with the brain, you're really well off. Because that's just one more thing that goes. But to get there, you have to work on developing your mind. You use what you've got as long as it's good, because it'll get you to a good place, to a place where you no longer have to depend on this. Yes, back of the room. Um, like yourself, uh, probably not quite as skilled in dealing with the, the
1: death of uh, the, not yet death, but the passing of my father mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. the last stages. And uh, he is going through various stages of bitchiness, upset, and mm-hmm. yelling, mm-hmm. screaming, mm-hmm. not quite as bad as all that, but then there are very, very good, lucid moments, mm-hmm. and how do you, one of the things is, is that uh, I, I'm not from, I'm originally from Boston, but mm-hmm. currently I live in the West Coast, mm-hmm. and I've taken time out of my existence to spend the time here with him, mm-hmm. and I planned a new trip uh, uh, to come back. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, of course, said, "How uh, you know, you what about your career and what about your life? Uh-huh, uh-huh. You know, I said, this is the most important thing in my life right now. Mm-hmm. I don't get a, I get a sense that he's appreciative, and that's not my intention. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I also don't want to cause him suffering because he sees his son mm-hmm. taking out
0: time out of his life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How do you- Just keep reassuring him. it's okay. It's okay. That you're not suffering. Because I'm not. Right. Mm -hmm. And just stay that as many times as is needed in order to convince him that it is true. While you're here, try to maintain as much stability as you can. I mean, he may be going up and down, but you don't have to go up and down with him. And make the most of the lucid moments when they do come. So that's, that's been my approach. I mean, I mean I, my father does. I mean, my father has some dementia every now and then. And so you just sort of sit with him very patiently until things begin to calm down again. And you think about all the times when you were a little kid and you were kind of demented. <laughs> and it's harder when you know someone, you know, they used to be okay and now they're, they're going in the wrong direction. Because a little kid, at least, you know, they were demented, but then these, you know, they, 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 they become reasonable human beings after a while. But... um make the most of the lucid moments. And, as, and, and figure out whatever you can do to make sort of a calming environment for him, which may involve music, it may involve other things. But your most important contribution, though, is, is your stability throughout all of this. That's the important thing. And... And take it as, you know, a lesson for what may happen, you know, maybe lying in wait for you. Um, That's real frightening. -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) Learn how to maintain stability in that as well. (laughs) And it's also an encouragement that, okay, the more you practice, the less likely dementia is going to be, and also the easier it's going to be to take, whatever happens. Because you found, you know, a resource of strength inside. And hopefully the mindfulness and the discernment that will enable you not to get overcome by pain, not get overcome by the, the depression that tends to attend, you know, come up with old age. So, so take it as an impetus to the practice. Yes?
5: Just following up on the question about children, mm-hmm. are there any books or other resources that you'd recommend to help us think about um, you know, just how to work with children? How to work
0: with kids. Hmm. you'd have to ask you'd have to ask the people here in the library okay. <laughs> what they have yeah. um, there's some good Jataka tales but then you have to be very careful <laughs> about some of those because some of those are pretty strange um, <laughs> but, but with the kids um, John Suwat, one of my teachers noted one time he came to teach at IMS and after the second or third day of the retreat he turned to me and said, You know, these people are awfully grim when they meditate. They're just, you know, enlightenment or bastards is <laughs> 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 the attitude. And he says, you know, they're coming to this because in this attitude because they haven't developed the kind of trust in themselves and the trust in the Dharma that comes from you know, learning how to be generous and learning how to observe the precepts and kind of the, you know, the, uh, the training which we tend to see as just kind of an outside training, but it's a very important part of the training of the mind. So, you know, emphasis on generosity is very important for kids I, mean, I, can, I think modern culture is the only culture I've ever heard of that actually aggravates little kids, greed, anger and delusion you know, <laughs> intentionally you know, mommy, I've got to have that whatever that just appeared on the TV screen just now because they told me that I want it and, um, most other cultures they try to you know, mitigate the child's <coughs> natural greed And so as parents, in this this day and age, you really have to work hard on that. So I'd say that's that's an important start right there. And the principle of truthfulness. There's a passage in the canon where the Buddha's first instruction to his son Rahula, after Rahula was ordained, was not to lie. And then whatever goodness you have, if you don't feel ashamed of a lie, you you, you lack the basic requisites you need to try to instill truthfulness in the kid. Yes?
3: Um, a lot of people here tonight have talked about the breath and have questions about the breath. And what I find on the days when my meditation is, used, uh, use the lack of a better word, right on, mm-hmm. um, the breath has a transcendent spiritual quality. Mm-hmm. And yet it seems like it's always discussed here in kind of a one-dimensional view it just you know, people don't know quite what it is and mm-hmm. when I look at some Buddhist scriptures I never see any reference to the breath in any kind of a spiritual way it's just something to use uh, but the Upanishads I think have a more spiritual mm-hmm. reference to the breath
0: mm-hmm. well the, the transcendent quality is actually more the state of the mind you can get into <coughs> when the breath flows well and there is that sense of the, the flow that goes through the body the entire body and it seems to illuminate it what's important is what the effect on the mind—that's the transcendent quality. Um, but as you get more and more in tune with the breathing, and you get more and more skillful at, it, at, at uh, relating to it, okay, it brings the mind to a state where there is this sense of sort of oneness, the sense of unity that you get with the breath. Then you want to learn how to maintain that, and then you will learn how to put that to use. Even that quality is used as a tool. Yes. Um, when
2: things get going, um, become really tough now, and apt to pray or go, mm, God, mm, you know, mm. please help me. What
0: would be a Buddhist Buddhist approach? That point? <sighs> um, just make, make a vow to yourself. Okay, may I do the most skillful thing? <coughs> may I have the resources? Because the purpose of that vow is to, is to remind you that the resources are there. And it's the, it's the direction of your will that's going to make a difference. Because if you allow yourself to get scattered, then you look at yourself and say, I can't depend on myself in this state, I'm going to need outside help. But if you can gather your energies together that way, say, wait a minute, I, I can depend on myself here. I mean, given the situation of karma, okay, there are certain things that are results of past karma that you know really can't be changed. And you'll have to learn how to accept those. But you ask, you always ask yourself, okay, may I have the skill and the presence of mind to do whatever is the most skillful thing right now, in the face of whatever happens, so that you know when disaster comes, it doesn't knock you over, because it's going to come. <laughs> it's, it's inevitable in human life. And disasters happen, small scale, large scale, whatever. The important thing you need is to kind of enable to keep your mind together, so that you can respond appropriately. Even if it means, you know, thinking, okay, at least my death is not going to be a suicide. <laughs> Anything else? What a note to end on. Can we have something else, please? <laughs> yes.
1: Mm-hmm. a bit faith
7: in some of these things. Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I haven't read too much of a uh, Buddhist canon. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I do remember reading somewhere that, uh, uh, that faith wasn't a big part of Buddhism, that Buddha sort of invited you to discover truths mm-hmm. for yourself mm-hmm. rather mm-hmm. than have them handed to you like, uh, Christian truth or right. mm-hmm. truths or Muslim truths by simply saying, I believe that you yeah. mm-hmm. are a mm-hmm. Christian or Muslim. Mm-hmm. And I use the word faith a lot. And so there's sort of a chicken and egg problem there. Like, well, I believe that doing this practice is going to help me, but then,
1: mm-hmm. you know, how does that all work? Well, they're, they're, I, personally, I'm a little
7: down on finding down you know, me truth. right? Yeah, I yeah, want to yeah. find it for myself, and yet you uh-huh. seem to imply that faith had an important role in going down the path.
0: It's like giving someone a stereo and saying, okay, trust me, if you turn this on, you're not going to die. Mm-hmm. <laughs> even with all those electronic things. Okay, turn it on and it'll be nice music that'll come out. Okay. So there has to be a certain element of trust in the person who's teaching, a certain element of trust in the technique that he's giving you before you're actually going to try it. That's the kind of faith you're asked for. You t- take, it's like a working hypothesis. It hasn't been proven yet, but you're going to test it. <coughs> and it requires a certain amount of respect for the process, that you're actually willing to, willing to try it because it makes sense, it sounds good, I'll give it a little bit more effort than I might give to other things. That's the kind of faith you're asked for. Ultimately, you find okay, when you begin to get results, then your faith gets stronger. This really does seem to work. Let's try the next step. Let's try the next step. Because what you've been taught so far works.
7: So what's my, all the you know the, the four noble truths, those things, that's hmm. pretty simple eight yeah.
0: this and 12 that. Yeah. Uh, 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 I mean, I you know,
7: there is uh, a lot of this number of list stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure, but, you know,
4: yeah. as, as a beginner, how much, uh-huh.
7: you know, do I want to memorize? Do I do I
0: discover
6: each one of the eight on its own? I mean that's <clears throat> this is all tricky. Well,
0: <laughs> You want to get the basic principles down. Okay. Four noble truths, eightfold path, okay? <laughs> <laughs>
7: Like if you take any given set of things, have you mm-hmm. discovered the truth of each one yourself or, or do you still deal in faith at some point just because you've seen that the whole system seems to make so much sense?
0: Well, you actually put it into practice and you find it makes a difference in your life. Mm-hmm. And then you work and work and work on that and you find it makes more and more and more of a difference. And then you get to a point where the results really are astounding, that you didn't expect them to be that good. Okay, that's when you're really confirmed. Okay, this really does. <laughs> <laughs> They've got you, okay? <laughs> but at the same time, there's no sense that anybody got you. You say, my gosh, this is really good. It's better than I thought it would be. But you've got it. up until that point, you, there's always going to be an element of doubt. I mean, you have, to really, you have to be realistic about human psychology. There's a lot of doubt wandering around in your minds, and you've got to learn how to, even if you're doing a scientific experiment, you've got to say, okay, just put aside those doubts for the time being. Let's work on this hypothesis and <laughs> see if it works and then you find it works okay then you build on that step by step by step but it's it's not that you're asked to say okay you have to believe that after you die XXXX then X, 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 you're not going to find out about this until you die that's not the kind of faith that the Buddha's asking for it's more like do you have enough trust in order to try this out because it's going to take some time I mean some of the things are pretty quick and easy you know, but others take time you know learning to develop concentration you could spend that time doing a lot of other things but you have enough trust in the process, okay? You're willing to make that commitment, and then when you get the results, you'll say, okay, fine. And the Buddha's teachings has enough. I mean, the people who've practiced have enough confidence in what they've, what they've learned from the Buddha. They're saying, look, it's worth it. So that's that's the kind of faith or conviction that you're asked for. Here we go. <laughs>
1: Yes. Uh, the person who mentioned prayer uh, and God and mm-hmm. and before, uh, brought up in my mind a, a problem that I find. I'm fairly new in all this, but uh, if, if you're a praying person, you believe in a God. And, mm-hmm. so, and I'm thinking specifically of like, loving kindness, meditation. Mm-hmm. Uh, a praying person thinks there's a God that has some kind of nature, you know, mm-hmm. May not be all powerful. God is good, He is my God. Mm-hmm. Like that. But when you say, Please, God, may all people you know, be free from mm-hmm. danger, uh, you're thinking that's possible. Mm-hmm. When I do loving kindness, they say, you know, May all beings be free from danger. Mm-hmm. And I think right now, I mean, millions of people so a lot of are a right, right, Shot, right. whipped, mm-hmm. to be starved, mm-hmm. or, you know, whatever.
3: Uh, it's like, does this have any kind of weight? In
0: well, there's, there are two times when you want to develop thoughts like that. One is before your meditation, the other is after your meditation. Before your meditation, it's basically kind of cleaning out any residual you know, grudges, anger, ill will for other people. Because you want to be acting on a mind that has... That, you want to develop these skillful qualities in the mind, and one of them is that you don't hold grudges for other people. And so you consciously train yourself in the other direction. And at the same time, if you do this before a meditation session, it helps you to settle down more easily. Secondly, at the end of the meditation session, when, you know, when your mind is more settled and stronger, you'd be amazed at how much force you know, the, the power of a, a concentrated mind can have in actually making a difference. When people's karma is sort of wavery, there can be kind of a push that comes from other people. And that's one of those things that you know you, you can find through experience sometimes in your meditation that it actually does seem to be helping other people around you. The fact that you're sitting there spreading thoughts of goodwill to them. Now, someone has really bad karma that can't be changed, Okay, it's not going to make much of an Im- impact. But there are the kind of the borderline cases.
1: I guess it's all beings. Uh, yeah. I mean, all beings.
0: But you don't know who's going to be helped by this. So I'm, I'm willing to have anybody who wants to get this help. I'm willing to help, you know. Anyone who can take, take advantage of it. At the same time, you're developing the more... And this is where the immediate result is. You're developing more skillful attitudes. You start thinking about your boss. You start thinking about other people who've got you really frustrated. Hey, wait a minute. Those are part of all beings, too. And so you start looking at them in, in, in a different way. And developing other attitudes towards them than you might ordinarily have.
1: Sending out vibrations nearby
0: first. And, and then spreading them out. Okay. Spread. And again, it, the Buddha said it's like you offer food to other people. If they don't take it, it comes back to you. <laughs> if there's nobody else there benefiting from this, at least you've benefited. Yes? This kind of may sound
4: silly, but along those lines, have you personally ever experienced um, positive effects from sending good karma out to like plants or animals? Plants?
0: Yeah.
4: Um, or like just having... Um, know, some evidence of really genuine communication, and if you're sending good thoughts towards them, you're seeing some sort of result.
0: I had a friend in school who was a psych major, and even though he wasn't a Christian himself, he had read the book The Power of Thoughts, The Power of Prayer and Plants. He actually set up a psych experiment with <laughs> <for> the kids. <laughs> this is what happens when psych experiments get, psych, psych, psych majors get set loose. Um, <laughs> And sure enough, I mean, said if you even if you don't pray, just think good thoughts about this patch of corn and bad thoughts about that patch of corn. And this patch of corn thrived; that patch of corn shriveled up. So, so think good thoughts about plants, (laughs) (laughs) if that's what you want. But I, I found, you know, if you go into a room of people, you think good thoughts about the people in the room. It's going to be a different atmosphere for you in that room when you go in. And there, there are lots of stories in the Thai forest tradition about you know, monks encountering tigers and other dangerous animals. You spread thoughts of goodwill, and it's a lot easier to live with these dangerous animals because that they can pick up the you know, kind of the, the chemicals that you're giving off when you're fearful and that. And it really does make a difference.
4: But do you believe it's more of a biological, chemical kind of thing, or do you actually believe in the, the sort of metaphysical aspect of it, maybe?
0: I haven't done any experiments that would <laughs> indicate the one or the other, but I you know, found it works. You know, you spread thoughts of goodwill to cobras; they don't bite you. <laughs> yes. I have a uh, end of life question. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. You know, at some point um, when someone you know of it, that you're the care for, or decider for is dying. Uh, the doctor will never ask. You know, mm. if you
4: sign the forms, to will the plug. You know, yeah, that's, that's a very difficult question.
0: Yeah, you know, what your thoughts are on that? You know, but I think it was easier before I mm-hmm. studied Buddhism and that. You know, okay, the pain and the pain, mm-hmm. uh, the thoughts aren't there. But now I am wondering, there's the awareness and, and and pain is practice and you know, it's hard yeah. to decide. Mm-hmm. If I mean, withdrawing care is not killing. Okay, the person is going to, on sort of just on the force of his own, his or her own body, is just going to die. Okay, the fact that you've withdrawn the care at that point is not killing the person because the body's naturally going to die on its own. And so you look at, okay, is is this effort actually going to help the person regain consciousness? Is it going to make the person lucid again? If it looks like that's hopeless, you know, then the wisest thing may to maybe do just to like... Withdraw the care, and let the person die at his or her own pace. The only thing that Buddhism is against is speeding up the pace in euthanasia. But um, there are many uh, I don't know if you heard about the case of a John Cha many years ago. I mean he had this very bad uh, problem with his brain, and they ended up putting him on life support. For a long time, I forgot. I think it was six years, seven years, something like that. Every Thai Ajahn I knew told his students, okay, do not do that to me, okay? When the time comes to go, I just want to go. So there's nothing wrong with withdrawing the care when it seems like that at that point, okay, there's nothing to be gained. You awareness doesn't end, it just goes and finds a new place to settle in. Starts the process all over again. (laughs) Anything else? Yes? When we were talking about karma earlier, is it possible to tell if a person's karma can be affected? The only thing you can do is try. Sometimes people think the doctrine of karma is kind of hard-hearted, saying, well, so-and-so has bad karma, therefore they deserve to suffer, therefore you can't help them. You never know until you've tried to help. And then you realize, well, no matter what I can do, nothing seems to be helping this case. That's the case when you have to practice equanimity. But you have to try first. Because you might look at it this way. You might be in that position someday yourself. What would you like other people to do? At least make an effort. Okay. Yes?
1: Um, I appreciate that you use the Shackleton um, mm-hmm. examples. And um, have read about it and seen the films recently on Shackleton. So it's the first time I've heard anyone talk about his leadership and the people mm-hmm. and their accomplishment sort from of a Buddhist perspective.
0: Have you written this? up? Not yet. It may it may get written up sometime. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I think it's time to, to stop. Everyone's <laughs> voting with their feet. <laughs> Thank you for your attention.